Okay, hello friends, and welcome to an exciting Abura Public Shiur. Today we have the privilege of hearing from Rabbi Lieutenant Zanigian, who will be exploring the personalities of the four sons of the Haggadah and what they teach us regarding educating our own children. Rabbi Zanigian has been with us many times in the past, and I highly recommend all to check out his past shiurim, which, are, which is accessible on our website. Uh, to those who are here with us live, and for those who will be watching after, thank you. And uh, Chacham, thank you so much for being here with us, and the floor is yours. To everybody, it's a real privilege to be able to speak about uh, Pesach, especially when we have Shonin Hilchot HaPesach, Samuch Pesach. We have a special institution to learn the Halachot of Pesach during its uh, proper time. So people often focus on what is a kezayit? How much masad do I have to eat? Does it have to be uh, uh, the size of one's hand? Does it have to be half the machine masa, the whole machine masa? We get so caught up in minutia. Not that the details of these halakhot are, are, are not significant and important. They certainly are. But we often overlook some of the most fundamental and most impactful elements of Pesach, I think, which are the moments, the time that we spend around our loved ones, our family members, uh, together as a, as a family. Uh, Pesach is one of two periods in the Jewish calendar where the primary misvah of the Chag is familial. And what I mean by that is for those who remember during um, our Chanukashi or last year, we discussed this, but uh, it's, it's worth repeating. You have misfot that are incumbent upon the individual. You have misfot that are incumbent upon the sibur, the nation, the Jewish nation as a whole. And then you have misfot that are incumbent upon the household. Ner Hanukkah is one of those. It's incumbent upon each Jewish household to light the candle or candles of the Hanukkah each night of Hanukkah. And also Pesach, when we had the ability to offer the korban Pesach, was incumbent upon each household to to offer in Yerushalayim. Now that we don't have that, we also have a second mitzvah, which is, I, I suppose, not really a household mitzvah, but more of a uh, mitzvah upon the head of the household, and in some circumstances, each individual, as we'll see in a second. That mitzvah is the mitzvah of Sipur Yasiat Misraim. Uh, we have the mitzvah of Zechirat Yasiat Misraim, which is, accomplished when we recite the Shema. That's why we have um, the portions of the Shema that we do that discuss Yesiat Mitzrayim. And that's a mitzvah every day. But Sipur Yesiat Mitzrayim, the retelling of the Exodus narrative, only exists one time a year, one night a year, which is Leil HaSeder. So Let's dive into the text over here. Um, you can't claim there's a misvah if you can't pinpoint to the Torah where this misvah exists, right? So we have two sources. In Perek Yod of Shemot, we have in Parashat Bo, Ulma'an Tisaper Vincha, all the events which are occurring during the period of the Exodus that, that will occur with the Exodus of, of the Jewish people are occurring for a variety of reasons. And one of those reasons, the Torah tells us, Borei Olam, God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, it should be for you to be able to retell Be'ozne vincha uven bincha to your children, to your, to your grandchildren. What are you retelling? Specifically, et asher That which I have, Le'itolel uh, is properly translated, or loosely translated, I should say, that which I abused, not meant maliciously, but in the sense of taking vengeance. And, and to retell those uh, wondrous symbols, that's in reference to the makot. The makot are called or referred to by Boreolam as otot, which I have placed in their midst. All of these makot were firmly established in the land of Misraim for all the Egyptians to bear witness to. And through retelling the story of Yesiat Misraim, you and your children and your grandchildren will all know that I am the 
master of the universe that was responsible for all these things. Now, what I want to focus on is something very specific. You also have this mitzvah repeated in Perakut Gimel of Shemot. Here you have the language of Haggadah. You have two, you have two um, instructive verbs that are used here. Lesaper and lehagid. What's interesting is that the Targum Niofiti, Targum Niofiti, by the way, for those who are not familiar, is a Targum from, uh, according to most scholars, from Eretz Israel. It's, it's what scholars refer to as Palestinian Targumim, part of the uh, Aramaic elucidations of the Torah that were part of the schools of the land of Israel, as opposed to the Targum, the elucidation of Aramaic that we are all familiar with, Targum Onkelos, which was really ratified and, and put into its formal composition in Babel, in Babylonia. That's why the Talmud Bafli, our Talmud, refers to it as Targum Didan. It refers to it as our Targum, the official Targum of the Jewish people. So um, this is, I guess you could say, uh, non-binding. This Targum does not bear binding precedent in Halakha, but it's informative, it's instructive. And our Chachamim often refer to it. So the Targum refers to this commandment as Litnan. Biglal de Titznun. I am performing these miracles and the Exodus so that you should be, this is, by the way, from the same Aramaic root as Leshanot, like Mishnah, to instruct not only in the sense of you're sitting your family, your household down, and you're reading from the Haggadah. It should not just be a passive reading, like you're reading from a tape, like you're, like you're a tape recorder of sorts. The misvah is litnan, to sharply instruct and to really get across clearly and meaningfully the narrative and the story of, of Yesiat Mizraim. So this is a very important point, not only from the point of view of halakha, because uh, a person is obligated to hear or to learn the narrative of Yesiat Misraim in a manner in which he understands. You have a chiyuv to understand it. You'll notice in Yofit, he says, It has to be mishtama. You have to be able to understand it. Most poskim, most authorities are of the opinion that uh, if your children, if your household doesn't understand what is being recited during Leva Seder, you don't fulfill the mitzvah. This is unlike, for example, Megillah reading, where we just had Megillat Esther. If a person, let's say, doesn't understand its recitation in the Shona Kodesh in, in, in biblical Hebrew, you still fulfill the mitzvah, although you probably should be reading it along with the translation of your choice if you don't understand Hebrew. But anyway. Before we go to the sources from Ar Chachamim, the Midrash Halacha, and from the Talmud, I want to just uh, jump the gun and let's see how Harambam, Maimonides, restates this misvah. You'll notice Harambam is very, very particular in his language. Misvah lehodi alabanim. It is. He doesn't say it's a mitzvah to read to your children or to sing to your children. All those things are nice, but it's a mitzvah lehodi to inform them, to properly inform them in the sense that they are yodeim. They, they know, they have full grasp of knowledge of the narrative that occurred, the stories and the events that had occurred during Yetziat Misraim. You'll notice it says mitzvah lehodi alabanim to one's children. So from here you learn the primary, as I said earlier, the primary obligation rests upon the head of household to inform his children and obviously those who are members of his household. Even if one's children are not inquisitive or maybe they just didn't have the opportunity to raise the question, which they're supposed to, which is how Manishtana uh, begins in our tradition, in most Sephardi communities, right? The children always begin. But let's say they don't. Then you have a mitzvah to begin. Because the Torah tells us, as we read, you still have a mitzvah nonetheless to recount and retell your children these episodes. Harambam here now is telling you, what does it mean, lehagid? 
it's to inform the individual, in this case, one's family members and children, according to their level of intelligence and understanding. So Haramam will now clarify what he means by that. And what I have highlighted here, if you notice, there are a lot of highlights in the source sheet. That's deliberate. So Haramam, unlike our our, um, Haggadot that have the famous four sons, which is the focus of what we are learning, Haramam groups together two categories of children. If the child is a minor, we're going to see what we mean by a minor. You can understand this in the sense that he's legally a minor, below the age of 13 or 12, or he's, he's mamasha, you know, a toddler. Or if he is a tipesh. Now, that is also not meant derogatorily like it is in modern Hebrew. It doesn't mean somebody who is uh, stupid. Tipesh, as we're going to see, is in reference to somebody who has a little bit of difficulty penetrating the depths of a narrative. Tipesh is one who has a block in his learning ability and is only able to understand what is said to him, what is taught to him, rather, in a, a basic, a superficial manner. So if you are dealing with this category of, of children, Omerlo, the father, has to say, Beni, my child, All of us were once like this. By the way, from here we learned that it was still common in, in Misraim, in Egypt, where Harambam was, to have servants of this kind, which is uh, an interesting moral discussion that we can perhaps discuss at the end of this lecture. But... Uh, the father would say, you were once like this maidservant. You were once like this servant in front of you, who's serving us tonight. And it is on this night that we commemorate annually that Boreolam, that God had redeemed us from this bondage. Whereby we entered a stage of freedom, of liberty. More appropriately, as our Chachamim Tell us time and time again, and Ben Chorin El Misha Asak So the Cherut, the liberty that we had been granted during the period of Yesiad Misraim, was not meant to let us loose like a bunch of loose cannons, but more appropriately, we are Ben Chorin in the sense that we now are not subjects to Paro, not subjects to mortals, but we are subjects now to Borei Olam, to God himself and to his mitzvot. Now let's say you're dealing with somebody, with, with a child who's he's an adult or, or a chacham. There you have an obligation to actually go into detail regarding the events, the, the miracles, and the entire process from the Makkah of Dam to Makat Bechorot to Kriyat Hayamsuf. Again, a father knowing his child's ability and uh, capabilities of understanding, and therefore to be careful to teach the child according to his ability. Now, the source for the passage that you read, that we read in the Haggadah, is from the Midrash Halacha, known as the Mechilta. Mechilta was Midrash Halacha composed by the school of the Tana Rabbi Ishmael. And that version of the four children appears first in this text. You have not two categories of children like Harambam listed, but you have four categories. First, you have the Chacham. Famously, we read, What does he say? What are the details of the minutia, the statutes, the, the ordinances? which the Lord our God had commanded us. That's the question. So dad now has to address the Chacham based on the question that he posed. Af Our Haggadot very often say Af at In Mishnayic Hebrew, you'll often find at is synonymous for ata. The Michilta, at least in most versions, reads ata like in normal Hebrew. Anyway, so you have to then commence the discussion 
בהלכות הפסח. The halachot of Pesach, obviously we're not talking about all of the simanim and shulchan aruch, but a father, according to the ability of his child, has to begin discussing the halachot of Pesach to him. And in particular, we don't di- uh, digress and, and indulge in dessert. That's what afikoman means, by the way, in Greek. Right? It's, uh, it's the dessert that was consumed after a meal. So nowadays our dessert is matzah, but uh, but during the period of the offering of the korban pesach, when we were able to do that, the final meal, or excuse me, the final taste that was left in your mouth from the meal was not dessert. It was not matzah alone. It was a korban pesach. Okay, category. So we 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 knocked out chacham. What about the rasha? I really want to focus primarily on the Rasha because he's, I think, the most misunderstood son among the four sons. So the Rasha, the Mechilta defines for you, Mahu Omer. What's the characteristic of the child that is defined as a Rasha? You'll notice Chachamim, by the way, very often in the Torah when you'll see the word Lachem, the Chachamim, by way of implication, understand that Lachem comes to exclude, exclude the individual himself from the group. Lachem velo lo. That's what the Michilta says over here. So the, the Rasha says this offering of the Korbana Pesach, all these procedures, all the minutia that Pesach entails. What is this service, this worship that you were engaged in? That is for you. For you, but not for me. I'm, I don't care about this. I'm curious why the rest of the family is involved in it. This is a very bold statement that the Chachami make, but it's, it's very true and it's, it's, uh, it makes sense, as we'll see in a second. Because he excluded himself from the rest of the family unit, he's considered as abrogating and negating himself from one of the pillars from one of the fundamentals of the, of, of the Jewish nation, which is to be included. In response, I don't know why. I think a lot of people understand this as you also have to knock out his teeth. Uh, that, that's not what lehakhot means in Hebrew. I don't know how that, understood, how that understanding came to be. Afatah can mean one of two things. It can mean, according to some uh, Hebrew grammarians, Mesudat David and others understand it as a form of dulling of the teeth. I don't think that makes a lot of sense in context. As we're going to see, it, it means you have to distance his, um, his rant. So if the Rasha is ranting about things that are anti our tradition and excluding people from our tradition, you have to distance his verbiage, his speech, and tell him, it is because of these misvot that we would be given. Ze is in reference to the Korbana Pesach, but it's also encompassing of the other misvot that we were given. God did this for me, and obviously not for you, because you exclude yourself from the category of people that practice these misvot. Had you been there, my son, you would not have been redeemed because you do not wish to include yourself among those who are given reason to be redeemed, to practice the mitzvot, and ultimately to do so, by the way, like the Torah tells us, to practice them in the land of Israel. Now, we're going to get back to the Rashan a little bit. I just want to go on to focus on the remaining two children. Tam is an ambiguous term. Uh, a little bit of a spoiler, but Tam is what Harambam refers to as a tipesh. Right? So the Tam, as we said, he's not stupid. He understands things at a basic level. Mazot, he simply doesn't understand the substance of the Pesach procedures, the Korbana Pesach, the eating of the, matzvah, of, of the Masah, 
Darbakosot, why we abstain from Hametz. He doesn't understand why. Perhaps many of us fall into this category, by the way. So, the Amar the father then has an obligation to say, This is interesting. You would expect the father to share the halachot with him if he doesn't understand what's going on. Notice the Mechilta doesn't do that. The Mechilta goes on to insp- uh, say that the fire has a duty to inspire the, ch- the child. You, you, you were not taken out shamefully. You should know, my son, you were taken out with might, with vigor, and that it was Borei Olam who was responsible for this. Once the child understands this, you can move on to other things. And I think that's self-explanatory, right? If a child doesn't know how to ask, you open up and you tell him, well, what you believe he's able to understand. That's what Harambam said when he said, even if you don't have your children asking, you have to tell them. Now, I'm going to just focus on a passage from the Talmud Yerushalmi, and then I'll take questions. And we won't read this inside, but the Talmud Yerushalmi has a slightly different take on things. You'll notice the first difference between the Yerushalmi and the Mechilta is that the Talmud Yerushalmi doesn't have Tam, it has Tipesh, like Harambam says. You have the Chacham, the Rasha, the Tipesh, and the Sheinu Yodayadishol. The Chacham asks the same question as he did in the the Mechilta, but the father father doesn't teach him Halachot. Instead, the father gives him the inspiration that the Tam received, that the simpleton received in the Mechilta. The Rasha, I'll, I'll read this briefly inside, the bold passage that I have in bold. He says, the Yerushalmi understands this to mean, What is this burdensome procedure? What is this burdensome holiday that you, that you bring upon us every single year? The Hagim are, they're such a burden, they're such a Torah. You have to spend so much time, so much energy, so much money cleaning the house, getting rid of the Hames, spending all this money, I guess, maybe not back then, but nowadays on expensive Shemuramasa. It's such a burden. Why do you want to be involved in this? And it's because of that pessimism, because of that cynicism, that the Yerushalmi says he excludes himself from the, peop- from the people, and th- the father responds to him in the, sa- in the same way that the Mechilta tells us. Except the Yerushalmi adds, not that he wouldn't be redeemed if he were in Mitzrayim then. Instead, it says, Lo That's, I think, more of a precise way of putting it. The, this person with this mentality, this child with his current state of mind, would not be fit to be redeemed from Mitzrayim because of his mentality. Now the Tipesh, so you have the Chacham, the Tipesh, the roles are reversed. The Yerushalmi has for him Mazot. He asks Mazot, what are we doing? Af atal limdo yilchot ha-Pesach. You have to teach him the halachot ha-Pesach. She'en mafterin achar ha-Pesach ha-Pikoman. She'lo ye omen mechaburazov and nechnas ha-Chaburah ha-Peret. And when we had the Korban ha-Pesach, as we said, you had to be invited to a particular Chaburah, a particular I guess you could say gang, right? That usually entailed family and family friends. And so if you were not, uh, uh, if, if somebody was not mazmin you, if they didn't reserve you for that particular group, you couldn't just jump from one group to another and had to be consumed within the greater family circle. Ben uh, For that, the Yerushalmi has a little bit of a, a, a more precise language again. If there's no da'at in the ben, if the, the child doesn't have the intellectual capability, then aviv melamedo, the father has to teach him so he can begin somewhere. Okay, so we learn from here, I think, two things, and I'll take questions in a moment. Number one, we see that even our chachamim have different ways of dealing with children on different intellectual levels and on different and who are on different, um, who are of different, we'll say, traits of personality, different personas. There is no one-size-fits-all model 
of instruction, of teaching when it comes to the Sipur Yasiyad Mitzrayim in particular, but I believe that these principles apply also towards Chinuch, towards educating our children and our students in general throughout the course of the year as well. The Chacham, you'll notice, do you teach him Halachot or do you instill in him proper values first? That's not so clear. Same thing for the Tam. If, if a child is sincere and he means well, but he doesn't have any content to deal with. He's, he means well and he has the capability to learn, but he's otherwise ignorant. Do you teach him halachot or do you give him the proper foundations to uh, have a, a solid outlook on learning Torah and then do you teach him Torah? Uh, that seems to be the core of disagreement over here between the Mechilta and the Yerushalmi. And then you also have this uh, ambiguity with regard to the Rasha. It's not so much ambiguity, but it's it's more ambiguity in, in what he's complaining about. So I want to just very briefly, if anyone has any questions regarding what we have learned up until now, I'm I'm happy to take them. How how did you translate Hakeh et Shinav the first time? You mentioned what it probably isn't, which is like uh-huh. melting the teeth, but you didn't. Okay, mention- so so that's gonna be our next source right now. Fine, fine. That's going to be our next source. So, so uh, Sefer Yirmiyah, Sefer Yirmiyah primarily deals with the impending first galut of the Jewish people. Yeah. So over here you have uh, Yirmiyah, and Avi says, "By Mahem, once the Jewish people will be redeemed from this exile, Lo od, you will no longer hear said Avot Avot uh, this was a popular adage, a popular idiom that was used during the period of the first Beit HaMikdash. Um, I, I don't think it's, it was used during the period of the Bayit Sheni or nowadays. I haven't heard Israelis use this nowadays, but um, it basically, so literally translated, it refers to the uh, fathers, the parents eat unripe grapes and the children have their teeth this is where there's some debate among translate among translators as to how to properly tra- uh, translate tikrena. Mesudat David, Radak, and others understand this to mean dulling of the teeth. Now, in context over here, it makes sense. What's the meaning of this idiom? The meaning is the the mentality during the days of Yirmiyana. He was Jews felt many among Am Yisrael felt they could do whatever they wanted. Vanim tikrena, and I'll let my children's teeth dull as a result. In other words. I can be happy and marry and do whatever I want. I'll let my children deal with the consequences. Now, as a good, moral, and upstanding person, no rational parents, no rational citizen would ever do things deliberately to harm their children or grandchildren. But this was the mentality that some people had. I'm not going to be alive to see them suffer, so I don't really care. Let them deal with it. Not my problem. That's the... Nimshal, I guess, over here, the Nimshal, the, the, the meaning of the parable behind what Yirmiyah is saying. Harambam, in his commentary to, uh, in his Perush Mishnayot, he gives a different interpretation, a different translation to this uh, term. He says, Uferush Keha, what does it mean? What does this term mean? It means, This is in reference to a particular opinion that somebody had in, in this Mishnah. I'm not going to get into that right now. But basically, it, Harambam is saying it means to distance oneself from something. And the distancing of oneself from it. Right? This is exactly what um, the, the Pasuk in Yirmiyah is referring to us when it, uh, when it says this. So why are unripe grapes referred to as causing... Uh, uh, as uh, uh, why why is it uh, the, the language that the Navi uses with regard to unripe grapes in particular? So Harambam tells us isa. So as to because unripe grapes are sour, and so when one puts it puts an unripe grape, if it's really unripe and sour, when you put it in in your mouth, your taste buds, your your palate is going to tell you stop chewing. This is not fit for consumption, spit it out. 
So, um, I think for our purposes, with regard to what the Mechilta told us, Harambam's understanding of the Hakot, not the Hakot with a Kapa, with a Kof, right, is a, is a more appropriate understanding over here. Because what does it mean that uh, the father has to dull out his, his uh, child's teeth? It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. Um, certainly, the, the popular way of translating it to knock out his teeth makes no sense. Uh, no no uh, grammarian agrees with that understanding of it, number one. And number two, I think to distance oneself, to have the, son, the son's rant distanced and uh, separated from the dialogue is really what's most sensible over here. That's my humble opinion. My humble opinion. I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, I, I want to point out something regarding the Rasha, though, since we're focusing on the Rasha right now. There is a comment from Rabenu Hameiri, the Meiri, in his commentary to Masechet Sanhedrin, talks about over here, what does it mean for a person to be Rasha? From the point of view of Jewish law, the term Rasha has a, a technical meaning, too. Um, when you have a wedding, when you have a divorce, when you have a contract that's signed, you need to have two witnesses. The Torah says, So you cannot have a rasha serve as a witness legally on any of these documents. You cannot bear testimony legally in a court of law. So who is a rasha? I need to know definitively who that person is. So the Gemara gives a number of examples. And one of those examples is basically anybody who violates Jewish law. It's a pretty broad um, it's a pretty broad criteria, but criterion, excuse me, but that's that's the halacha, and this is recorded as halacha in Shulchan Aruch, Choshen Mishpat Siman Medalet. Rasha is anybody who violates the law. Now that would probably make all of us rashaim. So, yeah, no one's perfect. Um, the world must move on. We still have to get married. We still have to get divorced. God forbid. You know, it's a part of life. Uh, when that occurs. But what does it mean then to be a Rasha? So the Mehiri, I think he says this beautifully. He says, These things which witnesses are considered invalid for being a Rasha, This is in reference to only whenever a person violates the law. He, I don't know, drives on Shabbat, he eats a cheeseburger, he... Uh, uh, beats his, his fellow Jew, he steals, whereby he does these actions knowing very well that they're wrong. And that knowing that they're wrong and doing so deliberately, he still co- uh, commits them and transgresses them. So, and he does so wantonly. But where an individual is doing something, He's in violation of halakha, but he's doing so either by means of uh, indirect transgression. So he may not know that something is asur. He's ignorant of the fact that this is a prohibited uh, activity in the Torah. Or he may not know that what, he might not even know what he is doing. He may be doing something where he might not even be aware of the action that's being uh, committed. Like, for example, somebody says something to an individual. And he doesn't believe that's meant to be offensive. It's not ona'at devarim in his, in his mind. He thinks he's giving the guy a compliment, but the guy is offended by what he said. Or, as I said, uh, he may not know that this activity is asur. Only once a person knows and is well informed, shu asur, right? And only then would it be considered a violation strong enough or serious enough, I should say, to have a person as de facto rasha until he does teshuvah for that. Miri goes on to give some examples of things where people are not too well-versed and they may violate them without knowing, like kosher on Shabbat. How many people are experts in the laws of tying knots on Shabbat and which knot is allowed, which knot is, uh, is, is prohibited? Um, which, what, are, what are the particularities of ochel nefesh on Yom Tov? how you properly light a barbecue, how can you properly extinguish a fire on Yom Tov, etc., etc. So, very important point to keep in mind when we talk about who is Rasha. 
Um, if you're going out of your way to belittle the Torah and to transgress the misfot of the Torah because you, you simply don't care and you have this uh, burning hatred for the misfot, so the description that our Chachamim gave of the Rasha kind of makes sense, doesn't it? All right, we're not talking about some guy who's quote-unquote off the deref because he's gone through some serious trauma, God forbid, or because uh, there are uh, personal difficulties or mental illness or things along those lines. Those, those factors are obviously not what our Chachamim are referring to over here. And so accordingly, our Chachamim would not instruct a father or a teacher to deal with a child in the, in the way that he would with a uh, standard Rasha. Gabriel Azar of Mainz, of Worms, excuse me, in his Sefer HaRokeach. Sefer HaRokeach is one of the earliest works of Halakha to emerge from Ashkenaz. So it's, it's very valuable in that sense, in the sense that there are a lot of early insights, early chidushim in here uh, that are worth uh, exploring and sharing. So he says something that I think we should all be aware of. He says, uh, if a person eats matzah on Pesach, and he's so full to the point where it's considered achila gasa. Achila gasa, kind of difficult to translate to, to set a rubric for that in halakha, but it's generally in reference to uh, eating that is on the level of being nauseating, right? You're eating ad nauseam. About him, the Navi Oshea, he says, uh, you know, those who are poshea, they're transgressors of the Torah, they will stumble in performing the misfot. So why is that such a bad thing? Number one, because according to halacha, such a consumption is not a valid consumption. Even on Kippur, can you imagine? If you're stuffed to capacity ad nauseum, a second before Kippur, and then Kippur begins a second later, it's like a second after Shekiah, and you say, ah, to, to heck with all of it, I'm going to have myself a nice glass of Coke or uh, another bite, it's asur, but you're not liable to karet for such a consumption because it's considered achila gasa. It's not, it's not real eating. So it, it, a person should not do that. If you truly are going to vomit and you consume the masa, particularly, I guess, the afikoman, right? Um, on, on such a full stomach, lo yasa, you don't fulfill the mitzvah by doing so. And the Rokeach quotes this passage from the Yerushalmi regarding the Rasha. Kayosebo lo yomar kama Torah Person should never place himself in a situation where he says, how burdensome is Pesach that I have to do this and I feel so terrible. By Yerushalmi, he quotes the Yerushalmi, Rasha mahu, uh, mahu omer, maha avoda azot, Right? Like, like we read earlier. I'm going to read some of these sources outside as I see fit. He tells us, uh, he gives us a different understanding of what does it mean uh, to be a Rasha. Shaul HaMelech, during the course of his many victories as, as Melech, king and commander-in-chief of the Jewish people, uh, is described in the book of Shemuel as being so victorious that Ditrani says where everywhere the Navi says anywhere where he turned he was Marshia. What does it mean to be Marshia? He says Mitkaber He would overpower and overcome the enemy in victory. Just like a Rasha overcomes his fellow and robs him by overpowering him and overcoming him. Do you see from here also another trait of the Rasha? The Rasha may have, a person may have beliefs that they keep to themselves, but they're respectful. There is decorum. There is etiquette at the table when you are, the ba- when you are not the Baalabite. If you're a guest, whether it's in your own home, meaning by your father's table, your parents' table, or certainly, certainly by someone else, where you're a complete stranger, you show derech eres. And if you don't, you're imposing your views on them now, aren't you? Where it's not asked for and where it's not warranted. We have 
Harambam in Hilchot Teshuvah, this is a famous passage from the Mishnah Torah where Harambam talks about those who have no portion in the world to come. And among those people, you have those who are Poresh Midar Kiasibur, also very often misunderstood. But Harambam defines that as somebody who separates himself from the Jewish people in all aspects, even if he observes the misvot, but if he is like the Mishnah told us, even if he observes these commandments, but he does so at the expense of excluding himself from the Jewish people for whatever reason, then he would be included in this category as well. Harambam reiterates this idea in Yilchot Evel when he talks about um, who one is permitted, or I should say who one is obligated to mourn for under the laws of mourning in Jewish law. And those who we do not mourn for include anybody who is Poreshmi Darkyasibur, somebody who hates the Jewish people with such passion and zeal that he may be observant, but he doesn't go to Knis, he doesn't go to synagogue, he doesn't contribute to Sadaqah, he doesn't fast when they fast, he doesn't involve himself himself in their semachot or in their tragedies, God forbid. And he performs all the mitzvot in solitude. Right, so this is uh, also this idea is also alluded to in the pasuk itself, when the Torah tells us that the child asks Maha avodah azot v'amata elav, as we as we read. It's then that the father responds. Then Ibn Kaspi in his Perusha the Torah defines for us what it means avodah azot. He says, They're gathering as a family when they offer the Korban Pesach, when they slaughter it and eat it, as well as the other details that involve Korban Pesach that will be on the scope of this discussion. As well as the peculiarities that occurred during the first offering of the Pesach, by the, 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 the smearing of the blood on the doorposts, Etc. Etc. You also have over here, uh, Misuda David defines for us what is it? What is uh, the root of Tipesh? So David Amelach in the famously long parak uh, of Tehilim, Tehilim Kofiotet, he says Tafash kachedet vibam ani paratecha shi ashati. He says Tafash inyan shuman. This is in reference to. Um, Something that is solid and congealed, like the like the like Navi Ashaya says, "Ki Hashmen Lev Hamazed," in reference to the Jewish people who have uh, uh, a a solid heart, so to speak, a heart that doesn't melt. So that sort of informs us with regard to the level that the Tam or the tip, or the Tipesh is holding him. He's not an individual, he's not a child who is stupid, as we said, but he's one who is either, according to one interpretation, of uh, a difficulty, one who is struggling and has difficulty grasping context, or content, I should say, or one who is simply uninformed. And it's the job of the father or the teacher to melt that uh, solid intellect by teaching him, by beginning somewhere. He has the capability, it's just a matter of Teaching and informing, finally. Um, I'm going to skip a little, and I'm going to just uh, go down to since we're on the topic of Tam, I also have over here Rashi in uh, in his commentary to Bereshit Chafhe. He says, commenting on the Pasuk that says, Ve'akov Ishtam Yoshev O'alim. Right, he says, "Who is a tam? Enovaki bechol ele. He's not a. He's not so well versed in said, in hunting and trapping, in works of the of the field. He's not somebody who is misha eno chadif leramot karuitam. Somebody who's not involved in deception and trickery. He's not savvy, I guess you could say. Instead, he is kelibo kenpiv. What?" You hear and what you see is what you get. That's that's what's on the inside. We have a great word for this in Farsi, for those who know Farsi. 
Um, we call such a person Sadeh. A person who is Sadeh is, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's very wholesome. He's very transparent. Toho Kevaro. And he's of pure intent. There's no ulterior motive going on over here. So, such an individual, such a child, has the full potential and ability to learn. He's just lacking the content. So there, again, you go back to that dynamic, that disagreement, I should say, between the Yerushalmi and the Mechilta. Do you begin with Halachot, or do you begin by building the inspirational foundation of Bechozek Yadho Siyano Adonai Mimisrayim? I'll end off with a passage from Rav Sa'ad Yagon's Sidur. This is from the Blau edition, and I'm using the Hebrew translation of Professor Yoshua Blau, Allah Shalom. Um, and he, he says over here on page 137, we fill the second cup upon the recitation of Magid. V'im yesham yelet bar da'at, you have a capable, intellectually capable child. Yamod al raglav. Stands up. Veishal. Ma davar halayla hazeh. Ma nishtana halayla hazeh. As we would say. Kefish avayr. Like, like Saad Yagaon is going to elaborate upon in his, in his commentary to the Haggadah. Ve'achacham shebachavura. And it's the chacham that responds to the child. Meshiv lo teshuvah. I'm, I'm going to write what the Chacham should respond, and Saad Yagaon does that later on. If there is no intellectually capable child present, very powerful lesson. Being a Chacham is not just about teaching and sharing the Torah that you know. Sometimes you have to ask yourself the obvious questions. Uh, Saad Yagaon gets this idea from a Gemara Pesachim. The Gmaran Pesachim says uh, famously, if there is nobody to ask, then you have to be shoel at that small. The person has to ask himself these questions. Sometimes asking yourself the most obvious of questions can be the best tool of teaching. Uh, you'll be surprised what insights a person can learn by reviewing the basics. So I want to end off here. Um, there, there was more that I had prepared, but I also want to leave time for questions. So if there are any questions, I am delighted to take them. If you have any questions, feel free to unmute or to raise the chat. Yeah, uh, would it be possible to share the source sheet? Would it be possible to share the source sheet? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I could, um, I could share the source sheet with uh, anybody who wants it. Um, I'm, I'm happy to share privately unless there is a way to do so here. I have one question, which is, I mean, a little bit, um, a little bit um, more broader about the Haggadah itself. The Haggadah, like, sorry for not formulating it properly, but... Bagada seems like this, we study the text and it's like this outline, but then we use that as the actual event itself, which is sort of strange. Like we don't say, okay, here's, it gives us an outline. Let's study the outline. Let's study the instructions. And then let's have this organic meal event with our kids. It's like that now becomes the actual ritual or the structure. So how, how do we balance that? Or is that what was intended? It, it seems very clearly from all the sources that we studied that that's not what was intended. It's not supposed to be a formulaic or a, um, uh, a ritualistic recitation. It's not a tefillah. <laughs> You're, it's, not, it's not like you have to recite from a formal text. Are um, you said the mitzvah of Sipur Yesiyad Misraim by reading the text? I think so, but that misses the whole point. Um, and that goes back to your first point, which is balancing the two. I think it's worthwhile for all of us in our own families to introduce Magid in a new light by using the text not as a formula, 
but as I guess you could say a syllabus of sorts to engage in a family discussion that makes the seder not only informative, not only um, educational, but meaningful to all those that are present. And it's really important that I repeat this. This has ramifications in halacha. Because when we're reading the text alone as a formula, like you would from a sidur, uh, one can possibly not fulfill this very important misfah minat Torah, where, such as, uh, such as uh, a case where you have family members or guests who don't know Hebrew. If they don't have the linguistic tools to be able to understand what is said, I mean, that's, that's, like a, that's a serious problem. So, obviously, if you're a guest somewhere, let's not be a rasha, right? We're not going to, God forbid, impose and change people's uh, family practices and customs. But in our own homes, Ohad, I think that's a good initiative to take. Thank you. I just wanted to say that uh, this is very informative, Hacham. Um, and you. and even even just to touch upon Ohad's question, I think we even see that formulation come about in, in Saadia Gaon's um, Agada, Sidur, that it's, um, you know, he even even sort of like highlights what is to be said and what, and what can be discussed. And I think also through... Harambam also, it's 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 more about the asiyah, the actual telling of the story. And then there's a framework for those who, maybe for the tam, that is in all of us to sort of follow. But uh, it was very, very informative. I really want to thank you for that. It was very, very informative. My pleasure. And one of the reasons why I pointed out this passage from Seder Saad Yagaon is actually because his uh, his take on, on Magid is actually different than anything that we discussed. You'll notice it's it's not the father over here that stands up and teaches. It's the Chatham. And it's not necessarily the biological child who's present at the Seder who asks the questions. It's a Yeled Bardat. So, again, this kind of goes back to Oat's point as well. The The instructions are not meant to be formulaic. They're meant to be a rubric for which somebody who knows what they are talking about is able to have an informative discussion with those who know not as much. And a dialogue begins at the table based on that initial exchange. So actually, uh, he, it's very, very succinct and, and brief, but it's brilliant what he says. It takes the principle of, what, of the reality that existed during the days of the Tanaim and the Amoraim and he brings it down to the reality that existed in his days, which I, I think is um, it's good advice for all of us. I think even in the Rambam's version of the Haggadah, right? There's like some um, essential parts you need to say and other, other stuff yeah. that you meant for you to sort of, like you said, it's, it should be organic. It should be very, very organic. And, and, and definitely the focal point is, is the, are the children. 100%. 100%. Exactly. All right. Uh, here, uh, um, yeah, it could be you covered it, but I'm just trying, maybe you could uh, summarize it quickly. Um, so the, the Rasha, let's consider him someone, some, practically speaking, in a, at a table if someone is a, um, a rebel but sort of turns up, right? Um, you mentioned the idea of distance, his rant, or, or, um, but what ex- how does that exactly look? Like, is, is, it, is that basically you're silencing him? Is he saying he's not welcome? Um, what does that look like when you have someone who just disagrees with what you're doing over Pesach and and is just um, cynical? And do you how would you actually do that in in, in real life? I think <laughs> so. In real life, yeah, no, because this is supposed to be practical, right? You yeah. pointed out something that's really important to note, and I'm I'm really happy you brought it up. The Rasha is a part of the dialogue here. He's still one of the Arba Banim. He showed up. Lehavdil, Lehavdil, um, in, in my capacity as a, as a chaplain in the U.S. Air Force, one of the trainings that we receive regarding suicide prevention is the fact that if somebody is contacting you for uh, concern or because they, they're, God forbid, going to commit suicide, 
you already know that they're looking for a way out because they're calling you. The Rashas, again, I may offend some people who have different beliefs than I, people who are atheists or agnostic, but this is what I believe. Somebody is showing up to the Seder and they're making these comments. It's to a degree, I think, a subconscious cry. Maybe not for uh, Torah or maybe not for uh, learning the particularities of Hilchot HaPesach, but it's a cry to be included. That's, I think, the first step in what we saw from Harambam and two other sources to bringing this person back into the fold. You bring him back to the fold of Torah by simply physically bringing him back. Because the Rashan is he who excludes himself, not only spiritually, but physically from the people. If he's showing up, that's the first step in, I guess, for lack of better terms, recovery. What we don't tolerate, though, is disrespect. So he shows up, he makes the comments, Af shinav. We, we distance the rhetoric that he is presenting because it's not part of the protocol and etiquette of the Seder table. You can begin, again, you as a competent father or teacher have to know how to gauge such an individual subjectively. There's no one size fits all. But it deserves a response. The inquiry, as disrespectful as it may be, deserves a response. Not a response to the disrespect, but a response in engaging in a different form of dialogue. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. What is the the va'af over there? What was that? What is the ve'af? Meaning ve'af atahakech, you know. Ah, that's a good point. So what's he, that's a good, okay, so that's a very, very good point. Um, he, af means that you're doing that which the Rasha is doing to you. Even you do the same thing back to him, right? So it's a good implication. It's a good diuk actually in the Mechilta that I didn't pick up on. I'm happy you picked up on that which is that the Rasha, according to the Mechilta, is trying to distance our rhetoric from being taught. Um, he's trying to prevent the discussion of Pesach from occurring at the table by saying these things. So in response, we, we stop him from pushing his rhetoric. That's, it's midah keneged midah, in other words. It's a, that's a very, very good point. I didn't pick up on that. Thank you for pointing that out. Because that language doesn't exist by the other by the other children; it only exists by the Rasha. The Yerushalmi uses the same language, by the way. Afatai morlo. I, I once heard from Hacham ben Haim. He, he was Hacham ben Haim. No, sorry, sorry, Hacham Haim Ovadia. He once said something very interesting about the whole um, uh, what are the words? I'm sorry if I'm very, I'm not uh, clear on those words. But he said the original meeting was, you know, so you have your dessert and you don't leave. Right? Like that, that was the original intent, like you said, right? Like you you stay and, you, and you're with your, your family, with your, even if you might disagree, that's the whole point is that we, we have... Uh, I guess, uh, you know, we sort of deal with our differences and that's the real hashivut of not eating after the fikoman is the whole idea is that we're staying together. We're not going to see our friends. We're not going to, to see people. And I think, I think that makes, I think that makes the, I think you said that in your point. And I just thought how important it is because talking about, you know, you give them the same, the, the, you give them the same degree of alienation, but not to the point you don't surpass it. You still want them to be included and you want to make sure that no one no one leaves. So that was, um, that just resonated with me. So thanks for that. Beautiful, beautiful. There are, there are a number of Rishonim who also bring that down. That's, that's mm-hmm. true. Beautiful. Any other questions? Okay. Um, Alishava. Sorry, yeah, let me, I want to be seen. <laughs> I, I think you may have covered it. I just wonder as an educator, as a parent, if uh, very often the responsible are us, the parents, the teachers who haven't been able to educate and motivate and go deep 
into um, in the story, I mean, in general, that this, uh, what we call the Reshaim, are probably a victim of maybe the circumstances, the society, those of us who have not been able to teach them well, inspire them, who has left them down. It's a, my question. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understood the question, I'm sorry. Sorry, that at to what point are maybe when we consider them Reshaim, are maybe they are victims of us mm. not being responsible parents and educators? So, so, so that's a very good question, and I, I did briefly address it. Um, yeah. one of the great Rishonim from originally from Spain, actually, but later in his life, most of his life in Provence, he pointed out that the Rasha is somebody who deliberately and brazenly violates the Torah and its, its commandments, knowing very well that what he is doing is wrong, knowing better, uh, not just superficially, but he knows the halachot, he knows the intricacies, and he disregards it regardless, just out of pure spite. So uh, such, such a person would fall into the category from the, from the point of view of Halakha as, as being a Rasha. We're not talking about, for example, in, in the community that I grew up, uh, in the Iranian Jewish community, you'll have many people, for example, who drive to synagogue on Shabbat, but you better bet very well, they know tefillah inside and out. They know ta'amea mikram better than most people in uh, Lakewood. They show up to every shiur that they can, and kashur in the home, believe me, they know what they're doing. Right. Um, but but let's but let's say they're not uh, particular about oh. certain things because culturally. I was, not, mm-hmm. I was just more referring to kids of the derech. So I think the same. I think the same holds true for many who are quote unquote off the derech. But again, it's it's difficult to generalize when we're talking about Ooh. such a subjective problem because each child, each individual who is self-proclaimed off the derech or acts that way has their own subjective reasons for that. So if it's due to a, due to a trauma, for example, you know, that, that's, a, that's a completely different discussion. We're not talking about a rasha there. We're talking about somebody who's suffering from something that needs to be dealt with. Well, yeah, thank you. Maybe to jump on Elisheva's point, I was just wondering, is it Tinok Shinishbar? I happen to work in a community where a lot of people just have a very different view on rasha. And so part of what I'm, trying, part of what I'm trying to do is sort of like educate as much as I can, you know, but so these people come with preconceived notions. Um, and so not that it's shame, they actually, you know, believe more natural law, let's say, than, than Torah or, or something like that. So would they be considered like the, if you had to put them in a box, obviously these four, these four children, you know, it's not a perfect circle or perfect box. But these people will have adamant resentment because maybe of the lack of education at home, which is what I'm seeing. Would they be considered the Tipesh? Would they be considered the Yani the Tam? Uh, they're definitely not the Rishayim because they, 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 don't, they don't know, right? It's not their, it's not, you know. And so I think maybe that's, that's more the question. They're, they're probably the Tam. I don't know. They would, if... most, they would most closely resemble the Tam. Right. Because if they really did know better and they really were super and they, you know, went off the deep end and started rebelling just out of spite, then, then they would be the Rasha. But what you're describing regarding Tinokot Shenishbu is, it's, a, it's been a hotly debated topic in Halakha for a number of centuries now. It's generally assumed nowadays, like the famous uh, ruling of Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger in his Binyan Sion, and many Acharonim adopt this view that nowadays, in the 20th and 21st centuries, when we have people who are not practicing mitzvot out of spite, but they simply, yeah, they don't know better. They may see others acting, quote unquote, religiously, but that doesn't necessarily count as informing an individual. It doesn't sink into the same degree. And so certainly such an individual is not a rasha. When you speak to such people, when you, when you talk to such people and you get to know them, it's obvious instantly that we're not talking about somebody who fits that criteria. By the same token, the general practice nowadays is that such an individual is also not used as a witness for 
uh, gitin, for marriage, etc., just out of this, the sensitivity of the legalities regarding um, wanting to satisfy all opinions for, for legal documents and the like. But we certainly count such people for minyan. We certainly call these people up to the Torah. If they are kohanim, we certainly call them to do birkat kohanim for us. That's, that's a pretty universally accepted now. I know there's some circles that don't accept that, but I think that's without solid halakhic basis, in my opinion. What scares that through your interpretation of a rasha, you can even have a tamil chacham, whatever that may be, that may be a rasha. If they don't, if they impose their view or they, they're at a table and they're dissatisfied with how things are, are going on, then, you know, they're not, they're not including themselves within that family or within that household. That, you that's could, a fine line between, it's more of a fine line between a chacham and a rasha than a tam and a rasha. You're, a, you're absolutely right about that. That's a, it's a very good point. Very good point. Being a chacham is not just about knowledge, but also about etiquette. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So for tonight. Thank you so much, Chacham. It was very insightful. It's always a privilege and pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. And uh, stay tuned for all the other awesome shooting and for hopefully another one of the shooting from the Chacham. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. Thank you. Good Thank evening. You. Thank you. Thank you so much.